would encourage you to open to the book of Romans, chapter 1, this morning. I want to begin by talking about what I'm calling the great omission. Not the great commission, the great omission. It is, I think, an accurate assessment of our day that we have um, left out something that is critically important. And if we leave it out for long enough, we end up adjusting the gospel. We, we end up with a different message. This is what is very dangerously possible of our generation. Richard Niebuhr spoke about this years ago, and he said it's, it's possible to end up with a gospel that speaks about a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. How easy it is for us to pull the things that warm our hearts and fit in our minds, things that, that make us feel great about God and who he has revealed himself to be, and then gloss over the things that can make us uncomfortable, like this passage, like the text before us. Now, we come to a passage like this, and we have to be aware of, of what's happening in our hearts. I think it's, it's important for us to be careful to not come to a, a message like this on the wrath of God, just itching, oh man, let's bring it, man. Let's, let's, just, let's just point the finger at all those people out there who need to hear this sermon about wrath. How easy it would be to, to use a passage like this to excuse a lack of love for lost people in desperate need of salvation. And at the same time, we assess our hearts and we say, but, but do I feel uncomfortable with this topic? Does it feel oh, heavy? Yes, it, it does. Trust me, by the end of this time in this passage, we're, I mean, we're only halfway through. Actually, we're not even halfway through. Paul spends the first three chapters of his letter unfolding the weight of our offense against God and his wrath rightful wrath against us for our sins. And so we have to catch that, that inclination to say, oh, I just would rather just skip to the, the fun part, right? Let's get past Romans 3 and, and then move into the gospel. Well, Paul started his letter and we, we saw a summary form of the gospel, but don't miss this. He summarizes the good news of the gospel, and then he spends the, almost the fullness of three chapters unfolding the need for the gospel. The greatest need for the gospel is not a lack of fulfillment in life. Uh, the greatest need that we have for the gospel is not to be rich and, and smiley and healthy and fill out the prosperity preaching on TV. Healed of all your diseases. The most significant benefit of the gospel is that you are rescued by Jesus from the wrath of God. We don't feel this as we ought in our day. The preachers of old, they heralded this truth. Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Friends, that was not over-the-top hellfire and brimstone. That was precise, accurate biblical preaching in love in which he warned tens of thousands of people who would listen. Do you realize how in danger you are of eternal damnation? Love says things like that, not hate. And so we come to try to fill in the great omission today. It's one of the ways we find balance with these things, do we talk enough about God's love? Do we talk enough about God's wrath? Well, just let the Bible set the balance, right? If we don't follow the Scriptures and just let the Scriptures speak, we will be out of balance in our lives. We will incline to one or the other, but not to that balance of who is He? What has He spoken? What is our situation? And so God's righteous wrath is the topic of our day. 
today, next week, and for a number of weeks. We will never appreciate the cross of Jesus Christ unless we stare intently at the wrath of God. You will never understand the love of God unless you have thought and dwelled long and hard on the wrath of God. It is His love that meets us instead of His wrath. That's that's what we deserve. And in the face of all that, He loves us. So, my encouragement to us today is settle into the discomfort and worship. Worship. Find glory in the aspects of a God who may challenge and broaden your thoughts of who He is. Now, we've spent enough time in Leviticus to know that God is holy. He is holy and He is loving. And that balance is important. He is holy and He is loving. And and one of the reasons He shows wrath is because He is good. He is good. Imagine if someone was was hurting a child and, and, and those who looked upon felt nothing. They're just like, oh, look at that. There's no indignation. There's no movement to stop that behavior. There's there's no concern at all, no unsettled. What would we say of those people? They're not loving. They don't care. They're evil. That is not who God is. He cannot look upon evil and feel nothing. Because He is good, because He loves, because He is holy and righteous and just, He feels wrath every day. And we're going to see that unfold. This is one of the most important passages in your Bible. Get to know it. Dig deep in here. Join me today and let's plumb the depths of these verses and allow the Lord to lead us where He will. Let's begin with a holy indignation. Verse 18a. A holy indignation. God is indignant. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed or is constantly being revealed. That's the the way the word is tensed. It's constantly being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I put an attempt at a a definition of the wrath of God. Here's what I would say to define it. You might jot this down. The wrath of God, I believe, is God's white-hot fury that righteously burns and moves in just retribution against all human wickedness. You see the important pieces of this? God is not just moving. He is burning in anger over sin and evil and wickedness. Now, when God burns in anger, he is never out of control. Don't think of it in our experience of anger. God is always perfectly in control. His anger is always chosen. It is the right response to the horror that he perceives and understands. It is measured perfectly in response to what he sees. His response is good and perfect and just. It's righteous. Retribution, that is what you receive as wages for what you have earned. It is what is right and just. It's not over the top. Some people look at the wrath of God and they say, oh man, God just gets cranked up and he just unleashes on people. That's like, hey God, what about self-control here? Lest we ever stand in judgment at God, the standard of all goodness and righteousness. His righteousness burns that bright in the fires of eternal hell because that's the offensiveness of our sin. If we ever think he's over the top, we can guarantee that we think too little of our offense. That's the problem, not God. We don't perceive how utterly offensive our sin is 
against his holiness and righteousness. Edward Donnelly says it this way, God is furiously angry with every unbeliever in the world. It is not, it's just not true to say that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. How many times have you heard that? Friends, it's just not true. He says sin is not an abstraction. It's not just floating out here as a theoretical concept. People commit sin. And their sins are an expression of who they are. When we sin, we sin out of who we are. We, we sin as we choose. It's what we want. Which what? Makes us evil. Our works are evil because we are evil. We are rebels, haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, proud. God is angry at that. And justly so. Righteously so. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now what does that mean? From heaven. Well, there's a lot that can be understood from that. One of the things that we see from this is that it is not on our plane. It is not down here. This is a wrath that comes from the throne room of God. He is over all. He comes in his wrath, revealing it day by day, minute by minute. And it is across this globe. No one is immune from the wrath of God but for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is his sovereign. He is Lord. He is, he is over it all. Satan is not the one who feels wrath and dispenses wrath. God is the one who feels and dispenses his right, just retribution. And he can employ any and all means to accomplish that. It is personal. Some people see God's wrath as some kind of disconnect, like a deism where you just you spin up a world and then you walk away. Hey, leave it to your consequences, right? The yin and the yang. Uh, what is that other thing that I just can't stand when people say, pay it forward, right? It's, it's your karma. You're a bad person, deal with it. How cold is that? That is not God. God is not just off over here like, well, you sowed your seeds. Now look at what happens. It's all just happening over here. And he's over here just loving people. No, God is opposing people. He is personally, actively dispensing wrath for sin on sinners. Personal. Because our sin is an offense to God himself. We tend to think of sin on this level. Our sin is infinitely offensive on this level. It is a righteous vengeance. God is the judge, he is the jury, and he indeed is the executioner. He's all of those. And every day he applies his just retribution all around this earth. Think of a storm. It's right to think of a storm. Think of a storm, a wall cloud, so big, so overpowering. You stand in that field and you look and it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And you realize, I can try to fight this, but I will not win. Right? You make God your enemy and you lose every time. He comes like a storm in Fury and wrath and righteousness. Hmm. I don't hear that on the radio. Do you feel this? I mean, it, this is not talked about enough in our day. Friends, we're, we are losing the bedrock of our joy in the gospel when we fail to reckon with the reality of our desperate need for the gospel. Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2, 5, and 6. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is an avenging and is avenging and wrathful. 
The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell, all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Do you hear that? The fury, the anger, the fire of his wrath. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are shattered or broken into pieces by him. This is your God, Christian. This is your God. This is the one we sing to and worship. We must allow the Lord to speak who he is into our minds from his word. If this is a new category for you, receive it joyfully, humbly, and bow. Bow. Hmm. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Why? Why? Why is it revealed? Against, here's the reason for wrath, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is revealing his wrath for a reason. The reason is, Ungodliness and unrighteousness in humanity. Those in whom he has set his image to be glorified and shine forth his goodness and glory. Those of us have taken that image and dragged it into the mud. What do these words mean? Ungodliness. One of the most common in our day is practical atheism. You live as if there is no God. You don't honor him. You don't worship him. You don't even think about him. You just live your life. You can be a really quote-unquote good person in our day and live defined by ungodliness, right? You can be moral and upstanding and a complete idolater. Ungodliness is everything opposite of who God is. It is ungod, not God. And it is in us to be ungodly. We are rebels by nature. We, we are haters of the light. When we live in such a way that is inconsistent with his righteousness, we are unrighteous. That is what sin is defined then as. Anything that, that breaks the, the, the character and the moral commands of God, what he has commanded and who he is. Anything that comes against that in any way or drags that down, that's sin, that's wrong. And God is vehemently opposed to it because he indeed is holy and righteous. And the creator, the one who assigned the purpose to his creation and the purpose of his creation is to what? Glorify him not the opposite. As it is written, Paul concludes, we're going to see this in a few weeks. He's still talking about this in Romans 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And here's, here's a, a, an amazing sentence. No one seeks for God. Do you have that in your theology? Does that fit in the way you think about the world? No one, Paul says, seeks for God. Now they may seek for their God. They may seek for a version of the God that they prefer. But the God of the Bible is not sought for who he is. All have turned aside. These are comprehensive words. In the context, it's both Jews and Gentiles, all humanity has turned aside. We are in dire situation apart from God's gift of the gospel. We have no hope. We stand rightly and justly condemned before a righteous and holy God who is angry at our sin. Now, verse 18b through 20, an inexcusable blindness, an inexcusable blindness for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He goes on. Who 
by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. They push it down. I don't want the truth, right? So here God reveals himself, and our inclination is to say, I don't like that. I don't want that. I want the God of my own mind. The God, I want to be God, right? I want to be my own truth. I want to be free. The suppression of the truth is a moral offense. This is an evil act. This is a choice that sinners make to say, no, God, I don't want it. What truth is being suppressed? Now, this, this is so important, Christian. It's so important. Listen to these verses. What truth is it that unbelievers are suppressing? Listen to what he says here. For what can be known about God is plain. Listen to those words. It's plain. Not hard to understand. It's plain. It's evident. Because God has shown it to them. What can be known about God? He's shown it. Well, how has he shown it to him? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been not sort of perceived, but clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Okay, so this is, this is a reference now to the revelation or the disclosure, the manifestation of who God is in power as creator. The grand designer. The glorious creator. And sustainer. I sat on my back porch this week and I watched these birds. So many different kinds of birds. So many different behaviors and, and songs to sing. Some flocks of birds that go through the air together. And you can't do that. And say, oh, that's just all randomness. You can't. If you're honest, you can't draw that conclusion. Here's what you say. What a creator. What a creator who designed that beauty, that glory. And it stirs your heart. The heavens, friends, the heavens declare the glory of God. They claim it. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Not just the birds that fly but the stars. So go from the little birds to the supernova, right? The massive cloud of the Milky Way that just proclaims every night, stop, look up here. God is. There's a creator. He's powerful. He's glorious. You know it. You know it. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Everybody sees it. All the peoples see it. There's no place on earth where their proclamation fails to accomplish his purpose. Everybody knows that he is. And that he's glorious. And that he is worthy of worship. Hmm. But the inclination of our heart is... Suppress that truth. Suppress that truth. You may have been annoyed by this light. Has anybody not seen this? Okay? It's just in your face. Some of you are like, I'm seriously fighting a headache. I'm sorry, Jenny. You're right here. Here's what suppressors do. They see the light and they say, oh, oh, too bright. I don't like that. I want to try to suppress it. That's better. Oh, it's better. There's no light bulb. There is no light bulb. And I just see this light, and I just like, if I can just put enough paper on the top of this bulb, then, then I can deal with the light down here. In fact, this makes a great altar. I can put various things and then bow to them down here in the light but I don't want to acknowledge the bulb. I want to live as if there is no bulb. And so I will constantly, now here's the funny part, I can put paper on this and I can still see the bulb. But I don't want to acknowledge the bulb. And so I say, 
as I suppress. The, what bulb? What are you talking about? What bulb? I like the light. I'll bow to that. There is no bulb. That is what is happening when people suppress the truth they know is God. He's glorious. He's worthy. That's why I say constantly there are no honest atheists. There are atheists who say there is no God. There is no bulb. This is all randomness and chance. I'm not accountable to anybody. Now, I love the light. I will bow to the light. I love the things that move, and I can call the, the universe the capital U universe and, and be in awe of Mother Earth. But I will never acknowledge the Creator, the source of that light. Push it down. And if I can do that long enough, I can find some kind of freedom. What I'll call freedom, I, I'm free. I do whatever I want. I can run around and, and, and just live as if there is no bulb. I'm not accountable. And so unbelievers find freedom of slavery. This is the nature of our blindness. It is a chosen blindness apart from the grace of God. No one can say, I can't help it. I just couldn't help it. Everyone says, there is no bulb. I don't want it. I hate the bulb. If the atheist is honest, he says, there is no God, and I hate him. That's an honest atheist. R.C. Sproul told a group of college students that invited him to try to convince them against their atheism. He told them that. That's what you really believe. They didn't like that. It's true. No one can say, I didn't know. So they are without excuse. That's what Paul concludes. This is the landing point. This is what he's been driving us to. They, unbelievers, the world over, are without excuse. No one is innocent. They are suppressors of God's general revelation, this, this gift that he has given. And they have chosen to say, no, no, I won't bow. I won't acknowledge. I will live as if there is no God. What about this? Well, we didn't know God on the last day, right? We didn't know. We never had a Bible. No one ever brought the gospel to our remote island. What about those people? Are they without excuse? You would be amazed how many Christians would say, yes! The answer, according to Paul, is no. They are not. They don't have an excuse. There's, there's no excuse. Now, let's be clear. You will not be judged for the revelation you have not received. If you were never interacting with the Bible, you won't be held to that standard of biblical revelation. If you never had the chance to say no to Christ in the gospel, then you won't be judged for what you haven't heard. But all stand condemned before God because all walk on this earth and breathe his air and see his birds his glory, his skies. They hear the proclamation of God's spectacular glory and they say, no. Does creation reveal enough of God for people to be saved? This is a really important question. Is God revealing enough in creation so that someone on that remote island could be saved without any gospel witness coming? Let me ask it this way. Are missionaries the most unloving people in the world? Think of it. If there's enough revelation in creation for salvation, then the worst thing we could ever do is send missionaries to unreached places. Because then, as soon as we proclaim the gospel, and those who stiff-arm the gospel are guaranteed 
fires of hell. So the worst thing we could do would be to witness and share the gospel. The best thing we could do is just to sit back and say, well, God's going to save them. Creation, they can look at a tree. Look at the stars. Friends, you can't be saved by hugging a tree. You cannot be saved by staring at the sky. You have to know Christ. You have to hear the gospel. It is essential for salvation. There are scores of people who have lived on this earth and never had a Bible and never heard the gospel. And today they are in the fires of hell. Justly so, according to this passage. That's what Paul's saying. Romans chapter 10. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, proclaiming, carrying the gospel? How are they to preach unless they are sent? And then he writes this. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the answer is no, missionaries are not the most unloving people. They have beautiful feet. Why? Because they go. They go. Our motivation for evangelism springs from passages like this. We don't sit back, oh, God's going to do it. No, we go. There's an, people are dying without Christ. And they are lost in their sins, and they will rightly, justly go to the fires of hell. We go. We proclaim. We speak. Lord, save. Bring salvation. And use us to that end. They are without excuse. This is what I would call the necessity of the gospel, friends. It's necessary. You cannot be saved by just staring at the sky and having a vision or a, 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 a liver quiver. You need the gospel proclaimed. Christ, the Savior, proclaimed. That's how God has chosen to do it. Now, a disastrous exchange. Paul continues to build this out. A disastrous exchange. Verse 21, he concludes, they are without excuse. For, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Look at this. This is what we do. We see the light bulb, we see the light, and we suppress it. We say, no, I don't want that. I don't like that. I won't worship. They knew God. In a saving way, absolutely not. No. In a true way, according to what he's revealed of his glory and creation, absolutely yes. There is a knowledge of God that all have been blessed with. But all to the man, instinctually, willfully say, no honor to you. No thanks or gratitude to you. Their futile thinking and foolish hearts. Futility of mind and foolish hearts. That's where it leads us. Now, it goes on. We will either glorify the Creator or glorify the creation. Oh, here's, here's the next verse. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, that's an amazing statement. That would be an, ac an accurate assessment of a lot of science that is propagated in schools. Kids, listen. Just because your textbook says that you are a result of randomness and chance, it does not mean that that textbook is true. That is exactly what this text is talking about. Oh, but we've got the science. This is, I mean, we've tested this. We've proven this. No. No, you don't. You've got a starting point that is terribly skewed. If you begin your scientific efforts with suppression, you're going to invent all kinds of foolishness to back up your claim. You see the problem? It's the starting point that's off. 
All science is skewed if it begins with, there is no bulb, no source of light. We suppress it, we push it down. So how do we make sense of all this? I don't know. Well, look at that, it's sure bright. There's no designer there. We must have just come from some primordial slime and crawled onto this earth, and then here we are. You want to understand shootings? Go back to that. You start with a worldview that concludes you are nothing more than a random accident. You have no meaning. Ethics don't exist. There is no real purpose in life. You know, we, we vilify the guns and we miss the obvious. It's the worldview that's propagated in schools across this land. It's only going to get worse. They became fools as they claimed to be wise. They exchanged, here's the exchange, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and, 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 and animals and creeping things. They placed the things in the light of God's glory and creation and bowed to those things rather than to the source of light, the Creator Himself. Will people glorify their Creator or will they glorify creation? You know, the thing that is glorified most in that which is created, it tends to be the person you see in the mirror. You. Sinners are hell-bent on glorifying themselves. Make much of me. This world exists for me. I pay it forward so that I get. Is that love? How do we think about that? Everything's about me. Lord, I have no time to share glory for you. I live for me. I don't want to think about your laws, your rules, all these restrictions you put on my freedom. It's all about me. I live for my glory. And I die eternally. What will you give in exchange for your soul? It is an idolatrous rejection of God. Willful. Knowing and evil. Let's just, let's just kind of wrap this up. Unbelief is chosen. It is a chosen blindness. Here is the light. Here is the light. And we say, there is no light with their eyes crammed, closed. I don't want to look. There's no light. I won't open my eyes. That's why we're blind. We can't say the devil made me do it. It's not right for you to punish me in hell, Lord. It's Satan's fault that I'm not saved. That's not an accurate assessment. I chose this blindness, and I will answer for it. It is an evil rejection of God. A suppression, willful suppression. And apart from God's grace, that will is clinched. That heart is hard. I will not let up on this and I will run all the way to the fires of hell. Something must happen to change the equation, or I'm a dead man. A devastating release. The final two verses. Man, like I said, this is heavy, friends. This is heavy. A devastating release, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because the reason is what we've just been talking about. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And here Paul can't even say this without breaking into praise. The creator who is blessed forever. And then he adds the word amen. Friends, theology leads to doxology. When we do right biblical theology, it will lead us 
to our knees in worship, even when it's heavy and weighty, even when it makes us uncomfortable and, and uneasy. Paul is worshiping God in his right and just wrath. God never does anything wrong. He is not evil or mean or capricious. He is good and just, and hell declares it. The fires of hell declare it. He gave them up. God released the restraints of the sinful heart. I think of the brakes on a huge dump truck filled with rocks pointing down a steep slope. God in His grace will often restrain sinners from the worst of their sins. He'll keep the brakes in check. But there comes a point where He in His wrath, His just and righteous retribution, will lift the restraints and allow that truck to barrel headlong into the pit that it is pushing the gas pedal to get to. This is part of God's wrath. Now again, don't think of this as somehow disconnected. God's just like, okay, I'm walking away. You do your thing. No, he's directing it. He is directing. He's saying, I am going to give you up in this way. In what way? Sexual impurity and the dishonoring of bodies. This is nothing new, friends. We see this all around us in our day, and next week we're going to see it up close, far more in the remaining verses of this section. Sodom and Gomorrah revealed not only the depravity of man, but the wrath of God. God releasing the restraints. And often, it's not new, it feels new because we're, we're just... We're just Diving deeper, it seems like every day you read another article of total insanity. And so much of it is sexual deviancy, twisting of the beauty of God who created sex to be for His glory. Wonderful, one man, one woman, together in the covenant bond till death do us part. How can we twist that up and make it completely backwards and upside down? Look around in our culture. Read the newspaper. It'll only get worse. This is divine punishment, friends. It's divine punishment. R.C. Sproul said it this way, sin is in itself a punishment for sin. It's a punishment. God releasing people into their own devices, into their sins, their willful chosen depravities is His wrath being worked out. It's not just AIDS, but it is that. It's not just sexually transmitted diseases, but it is that. In many cases, now not everybody is resulting of the wrath of God. Some believers have the echo of sin in all of these things, to be clear. But we've got to be careful lest we just write off these, these evidences of God's judgment as, well, that's just a medical thing. No, friends, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Sin is in itself a punishment for sin. And the wrath of God is revealed. The glory of God is all around us, friends. But you can't read the news. I scrolled through the news just this morning, just, just kind of as an experiment. And it was a constant revelation of God's judgment and wrath. It's everywhere. So, how do we respond to a passage like that, Christian? What do we, what do, we do there? Three things. Number one, we must reckon with the inescapable fact of God's righteous wrath. Don't ignore it. Don't play it down. Don't be apologizing for it or skipping over the verses. Account for it. Dwell in it. 
consider a God who is to be feared, a God who is to be obeyed, a God who is jealous for his worship and his glory, a God who is opposed to evil. You could ask it this way, is is God's mercy infinite? What would you say? Is the mercy of God infinite? Well, infinite, so long as we understand the giver of mercy, is an infinitely good and and glorious and merciful God. But he he is not infinite in mercy. There is a line. There is a line. And we see that here today. He will give up sinners to their sin in judgment and wrath. That is a fact in your Bible. Number two, this should lead us beyond just theology to people that we know, people that we love, people that we care about who live in unbelief. The terrifying reality of willful unbelief. No one is unsaved because they didn't know. They have chosen their depravity. They have chosen to suppress. They have chosen not to worship. And our call is love. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Love. This is, this, is, this is people. These are people we know and love and care about. It is a terrifying situation they're in. If we don't feel the, 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 the horror of what they face, then we'll stay quiet when we have an opportunity to share the good news. We may not be as bold as we ought. Maybe we would be afraid of offending somebody, so we just you know, sit back and say, Lord, well, I don't want to, you know, make them mad or offend them or ruin their day. When they stand on the edge of eternal fire, one slip, and they're gone forever under the righteous wrath of God. Friends, be bold. Be bold. Love your neighbors. Love your family members. Love your co-workers enough to tell them about the wrath of God that is real and that they face. That is why we have a salvation to proclaim. Saved from what? Answer that question for them. Not to be mean, but to be loving. Number three, the spectacular news we proclaim. Why is the gospel called the good news? Why is it the good news? It's the good news because we are in a total mess of our own making. And unless there is something done by God, we are all going down. But God sent His Son to take upon Himself all of that anger and that righteous wrath The cross bears witness to the wrath of God as the Father poured that wrath on His Son instead of on me, the one who deserved it. I'm going to close with this verse. John chapter 3. Same chapter where John 3.16 declares the good news of the Gospel. He says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What a promise. What a promise that is. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. But whoever does not obey. Now, look at this. Belief and obedience are synonymous here. John does not see any difference between the two. I'm trusting in Him and I'm obeying Him. He is my Savior and He is my Lord. I look to Him and I delight to do His will. He who, who believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. What is the condition? that they face? What is the reality of their situation? The wrath of God remains on Him. And so we pray, O Lord, make us bold to share. Make us bold to speak.
Use us to proclaim the good news to folks who face eternal wrath. Even today, who are a tasting of the wrath of God that's being revealed from heaven. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your grace or forgiveness. Who are we? We're the rebels, the sinners, the suppressors, the deniers, those who refuse to acknowledge or give thanks. But you, in your lavish grace and mercy, because of your great love, reached down and stirred us to life by showing us your Son, Jesus. Thank you, O God, for saving us from your wrath. Thank you for forgiving us from our horrific sins against you. Father, we have tasted of life and light and we see the light bulb and it is beautiful. We delight to bow to you, not to lesser little things that we used to worship. Oh God, thank you for your good work in our lives and keep us bowing before you in your fullness and glory and beauty. Keep us from idolatry, the things of this world, the things that are created. Help us to, to leverage that which you give as, as worship for you, the giver. And never to replace the gift and bow to that. Father, I think, I just feel the weight of the lostness around us. In this county, in this state, in this nation right now, we are godless and in desperate need of your help. And yet here we are today, Lord. Use us, we pray. Use us. Cause us to shine. Make us bold to speak. In love, help us to not fear offense, but to warn and call for repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for being a God who is just and righteous and holy. And we look to you in all these things. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.